Section thirty four of How to Sing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. How to Sing by Lily Lehman. Translated by Richard Aldrich. Section thirty four. Pronunciation. Consonants. Without doubt, the Italian language, with its wealth of vowels, is better adapted for singing than the German language so rich in consonants, or than any other language. The organs of speech and the vocal apparatus in the Italian language are less subjected to violent form modifications. The numerous vowels secure for the singer an easy connection of the sounds, while the poor pronunciation of the many hard consonants interrupts every form and tone connection. However, every one who professes to be an artist should learn to pronounce and sing well every current language. The mixing and connecting of several vowels in the different vowel forms on single tones is a study in itself. The most appropriate exercise for it consists in placing a y before each vowel and of renewing it before each following vowel, so that y becomes a binding medium, and at the same time a gymnastic exercise for the muscles of the vocal apparatus. Ideal, realist, fiol, teodor, rialto. First, sing one or two syllables very slowly, in one breath, so as to learn to observe each vibration and each position of the tongue and the palate. Then gradually add a third and a fourth syllable. The y is so slowly prepared by the tongue that it seems like a syllable itself. If we take into consideration that many German words contain as many consonants as vowels, which must be pronounced and resonate on a single tone, as, for example, Sprung, Strauch, Brinkst, Herbst, Schweifst, Brauchst, etc., we must acquire great deftness of the vocal apparatus, that is, with the organs tongue, larynx, palate, lips, nose, chest, and diaphragm, so that we can at least approximately meet such great demands. To begin with, we must try clearly to understand that every letter demands its own form, that every union of the vocal organs from one letter or tone to another must again create a new form. Perhaps it is better to say in this instance a new quality of the form or tone. In order to accomplish this, the existing form must in its concentration be resolved into y, which prevents the form from falling apart, before a change can be made to a new form, that is, a new position, no matter whether a tone, vowel, or consonant, or an entire word is to be changed. Each of the three first-mentioned form modifications has its own particular quality. If several of them take place simultaneously, the change will be doubly difficult. Dark vowels are to be thought of as concave, bright vowels as straight, 
and consonants as convex. Dark vowels concave, bright vowels straight, consonants convex. All vowels, all consonants, need auxiliary vowels. A vowel by itself with its finest shades of tone color is impossible. The bright A and E would sound shrill and not strong enough, and the dark OO and O would sound hollow, if not a mixture of dark and bright respectively, which in this case would denote body and pitch of tone, were added. As we see, the vowel AH is composed of three other vowels, E, A, U. These three vowels, connected by Y, enclose a small space in which they are transformed into a fourth. It is left to the singer's taste to make the fourth vowel bright, with E stronger with the aid of A, and darker and more covered with the aid of U. The E at the nose gives tone height, the A position of the tongue transfers strength to the larynx and its many muscles and cartilages. The OO lifts the back of the tongue towards the nose, and at the same time gives it the sonorous depth which a perfect tone requires. By means of OO the larynx takes a low position, is made supple, and is prepared for the form modifications. To prevent extreme differences in sounds from bright to dark or vice versa, the two forms in the pronunciation of the word must be brought as near together as possible. E.g., the vowels must be coloured or mixed according to the warmth and character of the word to be sung. As consonants compress all vowel forms, and so cut off all tone connection, we are compelled to look for a means to preserve sound and tone connection. It consists in pronouncing nearly all consonants in the A form, and during the enunciation, in alternating the concave and convex positions often, so that a kind of wave-like motion is produced in which the consonants may often resound with the vowel, as, for example, N. The process is particularly noticeable with R, but S, M, L, D, though pronounced in a different manner, also need all auxiliary vowels. While several vowels are always adjusted to sound as one, the consonant must, during the process of articulation, be slowly produced by the flexible motion and countermotion of larynx, tongue, and palate. During their formation, and even in their preparation, they take up considerable time, as they have to perform a twofold work in order to resound. It is then the exact opposite to that which most singers and pupils understand by clear-cut and correct articulation, or to that which they are in the habit of doing by giving the consonants a hard, quick, and toneless articulation, without preparing them and without making them flexible. With most consonants, it is a question of the vowel form A in which they are placed and articulated, as the vowel A must nearly always be pronounced before a word and generally after a word closing with a consonant. In the latter case, it is used as a sort of after sound, for example, 
narben. If, in addition, there is a question of pitch, then even A, the note-line, with which I have underlined the word, is not sufficient. There must be added to the A an E over the nose, that is, the A must be placed higher. Prefixes and suffixes, as in verraten, verleugnen, zertrümmern, etc., receive a covering of U or Ö, treating them as if they were written without E, thus verraten. In this way they become secondary to the main syllable, which, especially in the recitative, cannot be too strongly accented. We see how, in defiance to all the opposition which the consonants are ever ready to offer the vocal apparatus of the singer or speaker, the modified concave vocal form remains victorious. It remains victorious as long as the distinctness of the consonant is only attained through the co-resonance of the bright vowels A, E, and often also through the co-resonance of U and Ö. All singing, and especially the consonants, requires the A position of the tongue. For example, B, K, D, F, G, H, Y, L, M, N, P, K, R, S, T, V, X, Sat. It will be said that this is natural. Yes but no singer gives himself consciously the time to prepare, then to relax, and then to interchange the two widely different actions, motion and countermotion, as called forth by the comprehensive vowel and consonant forms, by making the muscles of the entire vocal apparatus pliable. In short, no one gives himself the time to give each letter its sound and its value. There now presents itself a second art, which we may confidently name the art of consonants. Entirely different from the vowel art, and still united to it, it presents to the singer the most difficult task, one with which he has a lifelong struggle without really knowing what it is he has to overcome. He generally looks for the cause in the pronunciation of the vowel or in the breath, or attack. It is not the vowel, but the preceding or succeeding consonant that constricts the form and prevents the continuance of tonal resonance. In time, many singers lose their voice through the inflexibility of the muscles of the tongue and larynx. As beauty of tone is the foundation of vocal art, it should be the aim of every singer to alter it as little as possible, by means of skilful and flexible pronunciation, without endangering the distinctness of enunciation. Not only the word and syllable, which are sung in the form of the dominating vowel of the word, but every letter necessitates a form modification. One letter jeopardizes another, every letter imperils tone beauty, every consonant endangers every vowel, one form another, in which one must pronounce or sing. Stability, beauty, height, depth, strength, and suppleness of tone and word 
run eternal danger of being altered and thrown from their path. In order to equalize the form modifications, it is necessary constantly to employ all those auxiliary vowels, especially A and E, which have the power to raise the tongue and palate, thus raising the pitch and form. Every vowel may eventually be an auxiliary vowel, according to the demands of tone beauty. We can better see from an illustration what a revolution the change of letters, in the form of a perfect tone, endeavours to bring about. How the singer must concentrate his entire attention on the form modifications or form preservation, while articulating every letter so that he may remain master of the beauty of his voice. No letter, no syllable ought to be pronounced badly. The teacher should not let a poorly pronounced syllable pass uncorrected. He must correct over and over again, until letter, syllable, and word are connected with each other by good resonance. As I have often mentioned, we shall have to abolish the false designations used in the pedagogics of vocal art as well as those used by the professional singer, erroneous appellations which produce false comprehension on the part of the teacher and singer. For example, the false idea of the breath, on which for years nearly the entire attention was directed, thus diverting it from the form for the breath. The misunderstood idea of breath restraint, atemstauen, on the part of the pupil, corresponds to the idea of a channel without outlet, in which the water collects without flowing off, whereas the breath must continually issue from the mouth. It has become the habit of considering the breath as the only cause for a bad or a good tone. This is the cause of the eternal breath pressure with which so many singers produce their tones and ruin their voices. Tone and tone strength may only be produced by muscle stretching and by the subtlest tension of the vocal organs. To avoid such an error, it would be advisable to leave the coaction of the diaphragm out of play at first, directing the entire attention to the form only, that is, to the relative position of nose, palate, larynx, and tongue, and finally, after the form has become habit, to the fine, subtle, and dirigible co-worker, the diaphragm. Another false conception is the attack, which one locates in the nose, another in the larynx, a third in the abdomen, a fourth in the brain, etc. As if the attack of a tone depended on a single point. See section on attack and on vowels. Breath pressure and tightening of the diaphragm which counteract the relaxation of the upper organs, or any counter-pressure of the diaphragm against these, are gross errors, which lead to the ruin of the vocal apparatus. Just as grave a mistake takes place when the singer, instead of using the cooperating tensed muscles which hold together the form, leaves the tone, vibrating breath, to the mercy of the formless, that is, the untensed, organs. This often and wrongly happens when singing piano. 
instead of relaxing the entire form one part into another, he either lets go entirely the diaphragm and tightens the upper organs, or he holds the breath instead of letting it flow flexibly, and dissolves the connection between the diaphragm and the upper organs, which then wobble helplessly to and fro, producing tremolo and uncertainty. I have seen a single such tone, breath, left formless, ruin the entire evening for the singer. Because he was suddenly robbed of all support, he thought himself suddenly indisposed, and was unable to sing to the end. Unfortunate ignorance! Wretched art! The weakest as well as the strongest tone which the singer is able to give depends on the energy of the experienced artist, upon the lesser or greater tension of all the muscles of the vocal organs in themselves, and one to the other. This tension extends from the nose, the temples, over the larynx, and the chest muscles down to the diaphragm. At certain heights, the nose and the diaphragm are the poles from which the tension from one to the other seems like the tensed string of a harp. Without this tension, a steady tone is an impossibility. It naturally becomes weaker and more flexible the lower we descend, and more tensed the higher we wish to sing. In this form, whose ends or poles are tensed against each other, everything takes place which the intervening organs, as larynx and tongue, which must likewise be in exact tension with them, have to execute in articulating, or which they have to execute in the progression of the tone toward the height or depth. Only he whose ear is so acutely trained that he can hear that each tone interruption is produced by the poor action of larynx and tongue, or by the tightening of the diaphragm or soft palate, or by muscular laxness, has any idea of the delicacy of the work. And only he has any idea of it who, through years of work, has tried to produce tone-binding, in such a manner that the tone will continue to resonate uninterruptedly, in spite of the difficulties offered by the language he is using, or by bad and careless habits of speech. That would mean to be moderate, to hold together all organs flexibly but still energetically, not to allow the action of any one organ to predominate, and to avoid anything that would injure the form. The cooperation of the chest muscles, also a tension, which I could almost indicate as an external sensation, is like the auxiliary vowels. We can make use of these muscles in the higher and highest range as soon as the chest voice is to co-resonate, that is, as soon as a perfect or nearly perfect tone is to resound. By so doing, the larynx, nearly entirely relieved, is now a sort of balance. That is, the cartilages of the larynx need not accentuate the higher position so firmly that they alone would give the strength. The cartilages are relaxed or supported by the chest muscles, an external sensation. 
In addition to this external sensation of the chest muscles, the external muscles of the throat, which extend down to and lose themselves in the chest muscles, take part. I have the feeling as if my throat and larynx were suspended from my temples, and with them the tone, which is extended simultaneously toward the top and toward the bottom. To some extent we here see what resources are at our disposal, and that only by the conscious knowledge of the adjustment of our vocal organs, which must be one with our ear, hearing, may a permanent art or a lasting voice within human limits be secured. The cooperation of all muscles, ligaments, tendons, and nerves with each other, and the action within themselves, must be secured to produce a mobile, supple, movable, and indestructible form for the breath. The form may be modified, but never destroyed. Some singers have natural gifts. The true artist, though, has worked over them and directed them into artistic paths. We need only to have observed Josef Kainz, a noted German actor, whose muscular tension and elasticity were admirable, and from whose technique of breathing every singer could learn. Such wonderful technique, united with such a wonderful soul as in this case, gave the listener the keenest enjoyment. And surely he could only have acquired this technique through very earnest study, and perhaps through the knowledge that a lasting art is impossible without technique. Also, in listening to the concert singer Meshert, you can very well hear the striking elasticity of larynx and palate, which so charmed me in his wonderful singing. Consciously or unconsciously used, technique remains a necessity to art and to the artist himself, as without it there is no art. Is it not a magnificent task to secure for oneself a privileged position in the world of art by acquiring conscious ability, by gaining for oneself a beautiful voice, or, if such a one naturally exists, by preserving it to the end of one's life. Singers have acquired the habit of pronouncing words in the same direction as they are written, that is, from left to right, from front to back. This also gives a false idea of pronunciation in vocal art. Words to be sung artistically are not sung as the majority are in the habit of pronouncing ordinarily not in a straight line, but in accordance with note height and depth, beginning almost at the pharynx, and placing before the last pronounced letter, letter for letter. Only a few artists have a clear and conscious idea of this. How rarely does anyone speak sonorously, and to speak thus would signify to join words constantly, one to the other in vowel forms. With many German singers and speakers, the back and root of the tongue remain rigid in the throat while pronouncing consonants, especially the end consonants of a word. No one, 
unless he naturally speaks flexibly, thinks of relaxing the form before and after each consonant, and of creating new vowel forms for the additional auxiliary vowels which aid in rendering the consonant sonorous and intelligible. For example, enavel, haven, craven. Naturally, the auxiliary vowel is only a prolongation of sonority and is not an articulated syllable. K, P, and T are toneless consonants and must be prepared in a mute form. When consonants are doubled, as for example in Himmel, Anna, Elle, etc., the first consonant must also be mute and the second only be given a resonant pronunciation. All other consonants are made clear and singable with the aid of auxiliary vowels, both in their preparation and in their articulation. This end form, even if it should be necessary to breathe in between, serves at the same time as a preparatory form for the following word or tone. The elasticity, the tone generator, and the tone carrying power are soon lost when the tongue and root of tongue compel hard and constricted muscular movements in the form instead of elastic ones. Rigidity of the vocal apparatus can, though, be caused by any single organ, and very rapidly communicates itself to all other organs, from the top down or vice versa, as soon as they are in some degree connected. The thyroid and cricoid cartilages, the two important distributors of strength, are in such instances so compressed that they make everything connected with them immovable. And especially the strength of a tone, which comes into existence by the placement of the larynx in the E and OO tension by means of the vowel A, whose co-workers are the cricoid and thyroid cartilages, especially in the higher and highest voix mixed tones, must only be produced in an elastic manner. The cartilages must be drawn together as if by a magnet. They must then be held together elastically, and then be elastically relaxed. As soon as the tongue and root of tongue, through stiffness or contraction, hinder the action of the cartilages, all the muscles of the larynx become cramped, and for the moment the singer is lost. I can only compare the sensation of this elastic magnetic force to that of two fine magnetic needles, or to two slowly moving bolts in a machine, which are drawn toward each other to a certain point, but can never touch each other, and which, notwithstanding the force of attraction, tend to retract. So the placement of the vowel A with the larynx, which now takes a position between two magnetic poles, creates a balance of strength upon which the tone must soaringly be maintained. For example, pronunciation that is too distinct, particularly of consonants, destroys all tone connection and the tone and propagation form. But singing depends chiefly on the connection of tones. 
every single tone in a scale, for example, may be right, but the connection from one tone to another very wrong. The error arises from the fact that the form of the tone just completed was not entirely relaxed, and the tension of the organs one to the other was not dissolved before the form was prepared for the next tone. The refined singer must learn to hear this work of connection and dissolution. To complete two tones, then, there are necessary four different, though connected, forms. The transition form from one tone to another must naturally not be heard, and yet the two tones of a scale would lack an important factor if this transition form were not present, which, for example, I not only hear, but of which I also have a distinct sensation when hearing others. The connecting form, then, is an intermediate form for a mute intermediate sound. It lies between two different tones or letters, and is effected principally by the relaxation of the diaphragm and larynx, which relaxation extends over the entire form and diminishes the current of breath. It is only when this process, which corresponds to the dissolution of the form, is perfectly accomplished, that the entire vocal organs, tensed in themselves and one to the other which action makes the vocal apparatus, are shifted the entire length for the second tone, toward the top for height, and toward the bottom for depth of tone, without disturbing the main form and the stream of breath. The breath is conducted in this progressive form to that place whose position corresponds to the height or depth of the tone which we are about to sing. The thought, the ear, hearing, and the adjustment of the vocal organs must naturally be one. This moving intermediate form is the connecting form from one tone to another, which, as we will see later, is made still more complicated through the pronunciation of words. Without this continual tone connection, there is no cantilena and no vocal art. The pronunciation of consonants exacts a certain distinctness, which, though, is not produced by the cramped stiffness of the organs or by the vigorous expulsion of the consonants. On the contrary, the preparation for them must take place in very pliable vowel forms, whether for sonant or surd consonants, so that the path from vowel to consonant and vice versa is kept resounding and the current of breath is not interrupted. The voiceless consonants k, p, t are prepared silently but with flexibility. The labials like f and v, the sibilants s, sh, z, the aspirates like h, German, f, f, German, whether pronounced with lips, upper teeth, root of tongue and palate, with tip of tongue and protruding underlip, or in any other manner, must, according to their peculiarity, be intonated very slowly, though we can hardly say they are rendered quite sonorous. Nearly all of them are intonated in the A form, 
Chemie, Forne, Schild, Kalt, Stumm. After each consonant pause, which serves as well for distinct utterance as for preparation, the consonant in question, as k, p, t, must be pronounced very distinctly and quickly. Every letter, vowel or consonant, requires then not only its own distinct form, transition form, and adjustment in regard to tone height, by adjustment in regard to tone height is meant the A-line of concentrated force, but it modifies its own form continually by calling into play other vowels which tend to make the form flexible, to place it higher, to spread it, to make it narrower, in short, everything which tends to change the tonal quality. According to tone height and the demands of the word, the modified form moves from one letter to another without altering the note line A, the pitch and purity of the tone. Every tone can lay claim to various heights according to the harmony to which it belongs. To render the necessary form modifications as comfortable as possible for the vocal apparatus, to adapt them advantageously for the tone height, and to use them in such a manner that the ear of the listener is insensible to the changes, is the great feat of vocal art. He who expects rapid progress during the study of this most difficult task will never master the art of song. There are endless difficulties to overcome. There are so many words in all languages. There exist so many complications in the sentence arrangement that it becomes a lifelong study. The ignorant, the unskilful, or the careless will easily cramp his organs in making the rapid modifications of the form. If this becomes habit, the singer is to be pitied, for as grand as his profession could be, it now becomes a torture. To prevent this, he must become acquainted with his vocal apparatus with the fullest consciousness must learn to use it, and must secure skilfulness in its use through conscious study. In the beginning, the best way to become acquainted with the unaccustomed functions is through very great exaggeration, which must, after knowledge and technique are gained, be diminished and changed into flexible action and tension of the muscles, so that finally these are united in a machine-like harmonious whole. The apparatus must be supple, elastic in every movement and counter-movement, and obey with energy that which governs it. Ever since Wagner made his influence felt, most singers strive to exaggerate the distinctness of the consonant, and often with them to expel the entire word in a hard, shrill, toneless, ugly fashion. You can actually hear the end consonants flying about in space. Even though distinctness of articulation is necessary and desirable, the methods of the Bayreuth school were an entire failure. Their teachers, unconscious of what they were doing and teaching in good faith, committed a great wrong, not only toward vocal art, but toward the vocal organs of the unsuspecting singer.
between distinct, shrill, and hard, which terms are ordinarily used synonymously, there exists a great difference. The tongue and root of tongue are always the great evil-doers in the hard pronunciation of consonants. They compress the entire vocal apparatus of the singer, and even the mere proximity of a consonant often makes impossible the pronunciation of the entire word. How unhappy artists must feel who, when they realize such drawbacks, search for all manner of causes without being able to discover the true one. And this is because the real cause precedes the effect a long time. It is necessary to see that the tongue is put in a soft, pliable state of preparation a long time before the consonant is even thought, and is kept soft and pliable during pronunciation, even though the consonant is hard. It takes a very finely trained ear to discover the cramped and hard pronunciation of the consonants in others or in himself. But as soon as we have discovered the origin, the tongue, our eyes are opened, and we may confidently begin a new and long-lasting study which is justified in taking up our entire attention. The Aria of Donna Anna Analysis of the Movements of the Vocal Organs Larghetto Über alles bleibst du teuer Reader's Note The following notes refer to the diagram of this analysis. End of Reader's Note the red letters denote the forethought. Very supple and close position of larynx on A and O. The E over the nose toward the head cavities is continually renewed. The O is dissolved and renewed with each letter. E, head voice, carrying power, opens the nose. A fixes the larynx, raises the epiglottis, secures height for the tongue, note line gives strength which in this high position must only be used in a soaring manner oo chest voice palatal resonance depth covers the tone dissolves the form flexibility makes the larynx pliable pause mark silent pause before double consonants and before t k p upon which follows short clear-cut pronunciation Y connecting medium and tension. The entire phrase in one breath. Über alles bleibst du teuer. End of section thirty four.